Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon, everyone. I really、um, am very happy to speak with you about my book on Chinese undergraduate students. I I wrote it and did research、uh, from 2012 and published it、uh, in the February 2020, so earlier this year. So、uh, let me share my screen with you、um, at this moment. And so. As Margot just said,、um, recently the Trump administration has made a series of policy changes that could have implications on Chinese students, and、um, I just want to、uh, say that it is、um, my research completed before that,、uh, but I will be more than happy to engage with questions about、um, any of the recent policy changes. Let me try to share the screen at this point. Okay. So everybody can see it. Here's my book cover, and、uh, basically, I just want to first give you some kinds of uh, broad uh, background or context for this book, and I'll give you a very very brief、uh, presentation and try to leave the majority of the time for Q and A. So this is the、uh, enrollment statistic from 2005 to 2015. Uh, where you can see that、uh, there is a huge increase of both undergraduate students' population and graduate students from China, but the growth for undergraduate、uh, surpassed the growth of grad students, and the turning point is 2014. So ever since 2014, Chinese undergraduate population has become the majority of Chinese students' population in the United States, and、um, I also.、Um, Wrote uh, uh, some recent statistics、uh, because we all know that international student population declined overall, but Chinese student enrollment still increased,、uh, but the rate has、uh, slowed down quite a bit. So right now, I think the most recent statistics shows that undergraduate student population just、um, exceed a little bit beyond one fifty thousand, and that includes students with optional practical training. So OPT policy is、uh, very contested right now, and we can talk about it、um, in Q and A. And、uh, talking about growth rates,、um, so I was lo looking at、uh, what is the watershed moments of undergraduate Chinese students'、um, population in terms of the growth rates, and、uh, people are most people are attributing financial crisis. As、uh, as a major factor, really bring about Chinese students because most of them are full pay students.、Uh, but this graph really shows that、uh, it really starts before financial crisis. It's during the year of twenty twenty two thousand six and two thousand seven. It's experienced the、uh, the largest growth,、um, and so that is really pointing at a few factors. I wrote in the book that is oftentimes becoming. Under、um, analyzed, one is the、uh, relaxing student visa policy, really happening during George W. Bush administration when Condoleezza Rice was、uh, a Secretary of State, and that was in the aftermath of 9/11, when American higher education has had experienced the the, the round of、uh, declining enrollment, and、um, they have、um, 
um, exerted influences um, over the White House, and um, that has brought out about the relaxing student visa or expedite. Um, expedited process of uh, visa process and that directly contributed to undergraduate students who are fully funded able to get the visa okay so before that uh, most of the students uh, get the visa under the full funding from American higher education so some students with even partial funding are subject to a higher rate of visa denials so that is an important background the other background is um, R&B appreciation so um, you can see that um, R&B appreciated uh, by 36% from 2005 to 2014, and that really uh, enabled, with the rise of middle class in China, uh, with their money worth more, they're able to afford this very expensive college education here. And so um, next is um, the 10 chapters in the book that I just want to give you a very brief uh, introduction. Uh, it follows the structures of three stages before they arrive um, in the United States. I, look, I was looking at how they're getting prepared, why they want to study abroad. I argue that there is a new education gospel in urban China. They view study abroad, uh, including study in the United States, as uh, a savior for them from this very competitive and cutthroat uh, education environment in China. And then I was looking at the pathway they're coming here. And then after the arrival, I was looking at the uh, academic and social experiences, their college and major choices. And then the third stage is looking ahead and what's their plan uh, or intentions for their future. So um, the, the next is some media headlines um, surrounding this population. Um, as you can see, some major news organizations oftentimes characterize Chinese students on their wealth. And most recently, the Trump administration really uh, politicized this population and um, they're oftentimes perceived as spies. Um, so it's very important to, for me, part of my research motivation is trying to project their own voices and perspectives and trying to unravel um, more diverse uh, experiences or compositions among this group. And here is, um, so this is their mother's occupations and father's occupations as a sort of a, a snapshot to their actually pretty diverse uh, social economic backgrounds. Um, it's not just, you know, children of CEO. And especially, I want to point out to you that um, as a college professor, I'm very. Uh, I find it very interesting that college professors are among the top uh, professions or occupations for both mothers and fathers to send their children to the United States. So, in other words, Chinese um, higher education insiders. Uh, are choosing American higher education for their own kids. And this is something quite revealing. And uh, next, I want to um, walk you through the pathways I found. I, 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 I identified four major pathways for Chinese undergraduate students um, to China to the States. Um, and these four pathways are actually stratified by economic resources. Uh, what, what do I mean by that? So the first one is uh, they're coming from regular Chinese public schools and then coming here to American higher education. The second is they're coming from Chinese public schools, quote unquote, but actually coming from international divisions, 国际部. Uh, for that, they often pay 
almost like private school uh, tuition. They varies, but it's similar to almost like American private school uh, tuition dollars. And then they're also coming from Chinese private schools to American colleges. The last one is um, for people who have studied uh, American secondary schools, there is a, a, a humongous growth over the past uh, decade in terms of their enrollment in private schools, especially pri private boarding schools. And the last pathway is actually the most expensive because they not only have to pay for tuition dollars, but also uh, living expenses, like host families, oftentimes uh, totaling like $1,000 a month. Um, so actually the first pathway, if they go to Chinese public schools, which is not um, at all expensive, um, and then directly coming here is actually the least expensive way. Okay, so so from that you can also see the diversity uh, among this population. So in my uh, research sample, close to eighty percent of the survey survey respondents traveled while well, the first and the second pathways to American colleges. So still, I finished my research in 20, uh, 2017, 2018. Um, 20, the end of 2017. So increasingly, as I'm starting my new project, new research, I increasingly found students are actually coming from the second pathway instead of just regular public schools. They're coming from Guojibu. All right. So um, because of this um, social economic diversity among this population, I found this very interesting social class and social reproduction as a sociologist. And I'm sorry, I have to really use that as a, um, and I identify this very sociological pattern. And uh, especially what I term first generation college students from China. In other words, they're the first in their family to go to college. They are at the distinct disadvantage in several ways uh, compared to their college um, educated peers, so their parents, either of their parents went to college already. Uh, though the first generation college students are less likely to enroll in selective institutions, uh, less likely to speak up in class, and less likely to have close American friends. So in terms of both academic and social um, integration, I would say um, they're at a distinct disadvantage. And I think that part is rarely recognized or uh, acknowledged by American higher education in terms of their policy, their policy making. And um, next, I think this is a major part I really want to convey is uh, what Americans get wrong about Chinese students. Uh, there, are, there are major uh, four aspects. The first is um, Americans often believe that um, here Americans, I actually include a lot of my colleagues and uh, American admissions officers as well. Uh, the holistic admission system in America has liberated Chinese students from the testing anxiety. And what I found is opposite to that because um, instead of Gaokao, there are new tests, TOEFL, SAT, and there are more tests because they can take those tests multiple times. Instead of Gaokao, they have to wait a year to retake it. For SAT and TOEFL, we know that they can take it multiple times a year. And for each time, they have to pay a lot of money for test prep and everything else. The secondly is, um, and, and then we can talk about why, you know, why there's so much, um, so much testing anxiety, largely because they are, they don't really know much about holistic admission system. Americans may not really know much at all. And Chinese may, you know, they're, they're totally clueless about it because they're coming from the test exclusive um, admission system. So 
they don't really, they're not really coming from the education system that prepare them for holistic admission system. What they can do is they know what they know best, which is to take tests. Okay, the second uh, major misconception is um, they, have a, they have little interest in making American friends. What I found is even though a lot of them don't really have American friends, they're very eager to make one. And um, it is largely the failure of the institutional efforts to reach out and establish what I would call structured platform to bridge uh, the networks and help them achieve the social integration. The third one is the misconception is um, Chinese students do not speak up in the classroom due to language barriers, which is apparently true, but is far from sufficient explanation because uh, when I survey the students, there is a smaller number, way smaller number of students thinking that their English is bad or not good enough. And we know that Chinese students are very modest and they sometimes underestimate their language skills. But there are a lot more other factors. It's more of a structural and cultural barriers in terms of speaking up in classroom um, that I think American, American instructors need to know and provide better support. Last is Chinese students want to stay here in America for uh, jobs or becoming immigrants. And so um, I do have some statistics here in my survey. Over three quarters, uh, they do plan to um, continue their graduate school here. Uh, a large majority of them want to. But the intent to return after completing, return to China is 61%. Uh, and it's very interesting that for people who have no plan to continue grad school, their intent to return rate is actually a little bit lower. So in other words, many people actually uh, trying to go to graduate school in order to go to China because the graduate school can help boost their competitive advantages in Chinese uh, job market. And oftentimes they go to better ranked graduate school than their undergraduate institutions. And uh, this is compared to the doctoral graduate stay rate, uh, oftentimes documented uh, with national science data. National Science Foundation has a survey on doctoral recipients showing the rate is oftentimes as high as 85 to 95%. So undergraduate student population have a higher uh, intention at least to return to China. And so, um, what American higher education can improve, again, uh, consistent with the four admissions, uh, four misconceptions. Admissions um, officers, I argue that they need to do more direct recruiting uh, in China instead of uh, waiting in their offices and assuming that Chinese students have a full understanding about what holistic admissions entail. And um, there is a whole complexity of essays and personal statements and recommendation letters and that Chinese students just don't really know how to do and they don't really have people to turn to, for example, for recommendation letter. Um, and, and, and this, you know, the admission professionals need to be aware and need to adjust their policy. A second is student affairs. Uh, this is really trying to uh, help Chinese students uh, with better social integration because that's what they want, or at least a majority of them, they do want to better integrate it. And they, they need help, and they need help from at, from the institutional level. Now, largely, they're left on their own. The sink or swim approach um, largely depends on their individual personality or initiatives. 
and, and that's something we can do better. A third is faculty instruction. That is um, in the context of uh, speaking up barriers that I just talked about, that American faculty need to understand more what really stand in the way of Chinese students um, speaking up and their teamwork, um, uh, collaborations with American students and trying to uh, provide better support, for example, emphasizing that there is uh, no right or wrong answer for your uh, class discussion and a smaller group is better than large groups. I can talk more in the Q&A and career services as well. And considering that many Chinese students actually do want to return to China and American career services need to provide that kind of additional support in terms of uh, helping them to bridge with um, recruitment services in China or global China uh, to help them find jobs there if that's what their career aspirations are. All right, so uh, I'll just uh, leave that and I welcome your questions and I'm pretty sure that um, there are many. Thank you. Thank you very much. That gave us a great overview not only of your findings but of the situation of Chinese students at American institutions at least before the last six months or so. I think things have changed considerably since education went remote. We have a very um, appropriate question related to your last comments from Ben Dees, who asks, what can American students do to be better allies to Chinese students who may be having difficulty finding a community on an American college campus? When I was a student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, I tried my best, but did not do enough. I would love to pass tips to my American friends who are still on campuses. Thank you, Ben. This is a great question, and I am um, I want to personally, um, you know, showing up my appreciation towards your effort. Um, and I think anything is very helpful um, from my interviews with Chinese students, and they're talking about their uh, American friends, taking them to football games, to stand-up comedy shows, those kinds of uh, American culture that um, they act they're actually very eager to uh, get some immersion. Uh, but uh, do not really have the opportunity. And um, so um, one thing that um, I think Chinese students don't really appreciate from their American uh, friends uh, is um, without really knowing them enough and uh, you know, right off the bat, engaging them into some kinds of politically sensitive or um, they would say offensive questions like Tibet or uh, human rights issues. And not that they don't really want to engage in those kinds of conversations. They feel like sometimes, uh, you know, Americans are um, having certain kinds of predetermined ideas and they want to, they want you to have some network first, some kinds of uh, mutual trust, um, some relationship built, and then engage in those kinds of conversations uh, would be better. And, 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 and lastly, and actually in, in, in my book, I really lays the responsibility on American institutions. I think um, there are a lot of resources, a lot of American students like B, who wants to help and who wants to learn from 
um, American, Chinese students. And ultimately, international education is about learning about and learning from each other. And sometimes for international students, this is oftentimes becoming the one-way street of learning and expectation for international students to adjust, adapt to their whole society. And um, so I think American institutions really need to take a more proactive approach uh, to connect people like B, uh, like, uh, sorry, let's What's her name? Uh, people like Ben, sorry, and uh, Chinese students who are also eager to, to make American friends. Um, there are definitely some Chinese students who are not eager. Uh, that's a fact. But what I'm, what I'm saying is uh, there are a lot more Chinese students who want to but who are not able to. So that's something that, that's a pocket of population that I think American institutions need to do more work. Thank you. We have a question from Lei Guang of the University of California at San Diego. He asks, have you found any research on how studying in US colleges has or has not changed the political values or views of Chinese students? It's a great question. I did address that uh, in part uh, in one of the chapters when I was asking them uh, how they reflect their changes. Okay, so this is a part of um, their own self-reflection about the kinds of personal changes um, they have they have been through since studying here. So I'm not a political scientist, so political attitude change is not the major focus of my book at all. Uh, but the data does show that um, some of the Chinese students have um, undergone some kinds of uh, um, changes with respect to political attitudes in a sense that they have some kinds of uh, more realistic and critical a picture of American political system, such as, um, for example, the election of Donald Trump. Uh, I remember some students specifically talking about how democracy works sometimes not very well uh, in terms of electing somebody that, um, that people are complaining so much about. Re re remember the context that Chinese students are surrounding themselves, and, and that's American higher education. And that's a pocket where they oftentimes hearing about, you know, um, people are uh, very, very, are critical about Trump policies. So there's this kind of, uh, I think, the, the, the disconnect um, between what Chinese students experience in America, the community they're in, oftentimes American higher education, um, they're not the bastions of Trump supporters. And uh, so they really, they're very confused and sometimes uh, disillusioned about um, democracy and electoral system. So that's something that I find um, in my research about, yeah. Thank you. We have a question from I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, Dulal Chanda of Berkeley College. Can you please elaborate on reasons behind speak, the speaking up in class problem other than their limited English language ability? So why is it that Chinese students don't speak up in class? 
Very good question. Uh, thank you very much um, for raising this. And language certainly figures a very important role, uh, but I can tell you that only 35% of Chinese students think their English are good are not good or excellent. Uh, but uh, close to 60%, almost twice as much students don't speak up often in class. So that really means there's something else going on. So um, one of the major factors is what I would say the test-oriented education system they're coming from uh, do not really uh, prepare them to engage in oftentimes open-ended uh, classroom discussion. So that is really the gap between Chinese education system and American education system. Just give you one example that in a lot of courses, when a professor asks a question, you know, I've been teaching at SU for the past 14 years, and I experienced that for the first hand. When I was teaching my sociology class, almost every question I ask does not really have a yes or no answer or does not even have a, the right answer. It's open-ended. It's trying to uh, stimulate thinking. It's trying to jumpstart some kinds of um, discussion. But many Chinese students uh, are oriented in their prior schooling that when they raise their hands and answer the question, uh, they're judged whether it's a right or wrong question or a wrong answer or whether it's a good enough. Uh, they're feeling they're, they're evaluated. Um, so I think that's a, a major difference. Um, you would say that's a structural difference in terms of this, the system, education system differences. I think American uh, professors need to know and they need to offer more reassurances to students. Like I tell my, my own colleagues basically saying that you just need to uh, say simple things like there's no right or wrong answer. Uh, there's no stupid questions, you know, things like that to reinforce um, so that students at least feel a little bit reassured that if, if they want to say something, they're not really evaluated. So that's number one. Number two is um, is um, the cultural. It's, it's really the cultural barriers that, that I really uh, talk about a huge uh, difference not I think education system is an integral part of the culture actually um, and in a broader culture there is this very different approach to speaking uh, in China and East Asia actually more broadly I I, I, I said this um, runs the risk of growth um, sort of or over generalization but there is some pretty robust uh, literature in education in cross national education research showing that in East Asian culture more broadly, oftentimes explained by uh, Confucianism, that uh, speaking uh, is discouraged or not as encouraged as in the West. And there is a much longer tradition of oratorial uh, training and uh, excellence uh, in America. Just look at uh, Western political leaders from Barack Obama uh, to, um, to um, any uh, Western, the UK um, prime minister. And uh, making speech is a necessary part of getting elected. But if you're looking at Chinese uh, presidents, if you're looking at um, Korean, South Korean presidents, and people are having a very serious face, and they're not uh, really evaluated based on how, how eloquent they are um, in terms of their political accomplishment or, uh, you know, this uh, personal character. Uh, so, so there is that, and um, you know, let 
not not to speak um, you know, Confucianism really discourage uh, you know students or uh, learners to speak very appropriately so people are having this kind of self uh, evaluation or self um, I don't want to say self-censoring there's definitely something going on but that's I think with particular reference to certain topics but with the general discussion I think there is a self critic in their mind not just in terms of the language there is certainly there's self-critic about whether I'm speaking English good enough I am uh, whether I'm making grammatical mistakes um, as well as the content whether the content whether the questions I raise is a stupid one or whether the participation I just the discussion I just participated is is appropriate um, that kinds of um, self-critical voices going on and that's very much related to the culture and I think American uh, university and their professors need to be informed if a lot of campuses 10% of this population are Chinese um, if not more we have a question from Tom Gold University of California Berkeley can you say something about the role of companies in China that prepare Chinese students to apply to American colleges and succeed there. E.g., some of these companies allegedly do all the applications for the students on letters of recommendation, teaching them not to write the letter themselves and get a teacher to sign it. Other services lets Chinese students understand the diversity of higher education institutions in the U.S., especially four-year colleges and universities especially now that many of them are in financial trouble they welcome full fare paying chinese students and also do cultural prep how to succeed in american college and adapt to life in the u.s overall i think there are about 15 questions in there so take as many as you wish all right thank you tom i'll try to take it uh one by one and let me know whether I left out anyone, any <laughs> questions, okay? All right, so um, first of all, this is a great question and a very significant one. I think talking about American media coverage, and I think they have covered quite a bit of this, and that has definitely um, cast some shadow on this population as well. And I, I did ask students about it, and in my, of, I didn't really say I carried out a mixed method study. I, I did have surveys and in-depth interviews, and I don't really have survey data on that because it's just hard to collect, collect quantitative information on that. So I, so I raised questions during the in-depth interviews. What I found is a very, again, a huge range of very diverse uh, picture here. So in other words, some, some students have not really used at all about those companies. They're doing the DIY, do-it-yourself approach, even though that's a mi minority of students. And for those students who are doing DIY, they oftentimes have family members or close relatives or good friends uh, who are helping them. So in other words, anybody need help? Uh, probably American students also need help. Uh, in this navigating this very much um, complicated and uh, holistic admissions process. For, for the companies, um, first of all, they're largely unregulated. So in other words, Amer Chinese government uh, has not even intended to regulate them. It's uh, very much subject to this new liberal market uh, mechanism. So they're, 
usually privately run, uh, and uh, they're oftentimes uh, um, varies in terms of size and scale. Uh, largest companies like Xindongfang New Oriental Company uh, has huge um, operation in different cities and. Um, I know that in major cities, their operation uh, size is like billions of dollars a year. But other agents, the, uh, other companies are one one person shop. So because of this lack of regulation, the quality control is problematic, uh, to say the least. That is why Tom, you have uh, mentioned the the the, the problematic ca cases. But what I want to say is. Um, because of their, 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 the, the quality is, is very, very much uh, diverse and varying quite a bit. Uh, there are some, some agents and some students are very satisfied with their agent support. And um, they're doing a, a decent job in terms of trying to uh, support without uh, compromising the independent voices of those students. So in other words, the students write their own essays, they they gave to the company for editing, or the, the, the company had the, uh, or the agents help sit down with the students, very much similar to what um, here the private uh, consulting firms are doing, helping with American students, their college application process, what the counselors are doing. Uh, and the other big piece of it is what I said, uh, what I described the international division, Bu. The international division has oftentimes a counseling division. So they're doing a very professional job as well. They oftentimes hire uh, counselors from the West, uh, people who have experiences, who are former educators, or who are former counselors uh, in, the U in the US and UK or English speaking, other English speaking countries. So, uh, so they're usually doing a very professional job, really depending on where you are and what kind of services students are turning to. So the kinds of services they provide vary quite a bit uh, in terms of the quality. And that's uh, to a great extent because the market is unregulated. And, um, and um, I have to say that Chinese students are, um, they are subject to exploitation. They are in the dark oftentimes. So if they're having the good service, uh, they find it very lucky. Uh, if they're not, and some of some of the students feeling they're cheated uh, by themselves, uh, by their agent, for example, some of some of the students complaining that the agent does not even show uh, the the admission letters to them, just saying that you got the admissions from this school and that school, um, and then you know this is the offer letter that they you, you know they finally go. So it's just just showing one offer letter to them and the student finally go. So that's a pretty extreme case as well. What I'm trying to say is Chinese students oftentimes are the victims in the process. They pay tremendous amount of money and American admissions officers and American higher education oftentimes turn a blind eye to it because that's the easy thing to do. So that's why I think, uh, that's why I, I propose that the, American higher education should intervene by not really subjecting Chinese students in that way, by directly recruiting in China, setting up partnership with their local quality high schools. Every city has key school. So they can have directly have recommendations from their teachers who know the students better so that the students don't really have to 
uh, pay so much outside for the external services and then subject themselves to rounds and rounds of tests uh, to boost their admissions prospects. Tom, is that, does that address your questions? It addresses a lot of, a lot of his questions. Um, we have a question from Louisa Ferreira who wonders whether the experiences of Chinese students studying in other parts of the world are similar to what they experience in the United States. This is a good question, but sorry, I cannot really answer it because uh, my research is limited to the United States, but my reading, and I have uh, friends and colleagues uh, in the United Kingdom, for example, um, finding out very similar um, pattern, for example, the lack of social integration. Um, and they also have to take a lot of tests. And oftentimes Chinese students and, and their families take um, tests multiple times. Um, and there is a huge uh, test machinery in China, profit-driven um, profit industries that also tend to exploit. So those kinds of mechanisms are similar. Uh, but probably the holistic admission system in America is kind of unique. Um, and that really make Chinese students very confused and in the dark in terms of, uh, you know, how to really craft the personal statements, how to really um, write those interesting and meaningful experiences that are inspiring. And for some of them, they don't really have. Um, they're, they're in the, in the, in the test-oriented education system, and they don't really have a lot of internship or civic engagement uh, opportunities. And a lot of those high school, uh, by the way, a most important thing that I did not even mention is the education infrastructure is different. They don't really have counselors for the most public schools because they don't need counselors for college applications. They're, they're, uh, they're just taking the tests and then they, their test scores decide where, you know, where they can enroll. So the recommendation letter thing um, is, is a big, uh, big mess uh, that they have to, you know, turn to their, you know, their English teachers sometimes because a lot of them don't even know how to write in English. We have a question from one of your fellow public intellectuals program uh, colleagues, Minye from BU. How are Chinese students adapting to the new Cold War and decoupling between the United States and China? Well, thank you, Ming. Uh, this is a very important question. Um, when I was doing the research, Trump was already elected, was, was, was at the end of my research. So I, I did have a, um, a few opportunities to, to raise this question and assess the impact. And then I can also share with you my own thoughts uh, about the current climate. Uh, no doubt, uh, they're very worried and uh, they're very anxious. Uh, my book is entitled Ambitious and Anxious. I think the Cold War definitely exacerbate the anxiety uh, because the, the perception is um, America is not friendly to China. Uh, the bilateral relations is, uh, is going downward and uh, they're having a difficult time. So uh, with that said, um, to what extent does that influence Chinese students' 
education decisions in terms of whether they uh, decide to keep continuing? And I think the answer is yes, uh, because Chinese students, they're very, very, um, they're very concerned with their degrees. So in other words, regardless of the Cold War or pandemic, uh, the top priority for them is to graduate. And uh, so this is something that Americans are sometimes um, not so clear because, for example, the, the dropout rate in the United States among Americans uh, are usually very high. Um, I mean, depending on the institutions at Syracuse, where the R1 institution, our um, retention is only 70 percent. Um, probably uh, being BU has a little bit higher retention and lower tiered universities has even lower. I think overall Americans have probably uh, attrition rate is 50%. So, um, but in China, uh, there is a very, very little, the concept of dropping out from college is, is culturally unacceptable. So uh, it's a high, extremely high rate of graduation among college students in China. Well, you can have different perspectives to interpret that. Uh, my colleagues, I have some friends in China who are interpreting this as Chinese higher education has low quality. They don't really have quality control. So they let so many students graduate. But on the other hand, uh, regardless of the reason, I think it breeds a culture of persistence, um, of completing the education they started. So, um, so I think my my personal view is um, unless we have the policy from the administration, uh, either government that make their continuation of study in the United States impossible, either visa issues or travel bans, uh, they're going to continue uh, and, and complete their studies. But for future students who have not really started their education but thinking about it, I think definitely the perception is going to discourage them from um, from studying in the, in the United States. Yeah. We, we have a couple of questions that were written before that one but can be considered follow-up questions. One is from Bill Armbruster, a retired journalist, and the other is from someone who chose to remain anonymous. Bill's question is, do you have any estimate about the percentage of Chinese undergraduates who will not be returning to their American universities this fall because of COVID-19? And the related question is from the anonymous person, what's your view of the Huawei situation and the Chinese students studying STEM majors? All right, okay, so I will address the first question first, uh, which is about my estimate about the percentage of Chinese students not being able to return to the United States. Um, I think I haven't really conducted research at this point for this particular question, but on my home campus, we're getting ready for them not to return. So um, I think that's what many universities are doing. They're trying to find some partner institutions in China so that they can have uh, some kind of residential programming. At the same time, they're enrolling in the online education. So we are told to prepare, even if um, you're, we're preparing for the uh, residential programs in the fall, uh, we're told to prepare hybrid version to a great extent for the international students who are not able to return to campus. And the Huawei angle? All right, 
the second question is my view on Huawei and uh, the international Chinese students studying STEM. I think Chinese student, students in STEM are particularly um, subject to those kinds of anxiety because they're targeted, right? Um, and, um, but it's very important actually to recognize that um, the administration's policy is very much not, it's not just having a negative impact on Chinese students, it's actually very much uh, having a negative impact on American technology. So for Chinese students in STEM areas, um, my research at least show that their stay rate or their intention to stay is higher than Chinese students in non-STEM non areas. So in other words, for people in my field, for example, their return rate to China is actually uh, pretty high. But for Chinese students in STEM areas in the United States, uh, they can find a lot many opportunities. That's why their intention to stay uh, is stronger than in non-STEM areas. So I think the current situation definitely posed um, bigger challenges for them than in other areas. And for American technology, it's not the good news. And um, I think most recent, uh, I just read a working paper from Georgetown really showing that one third of in artificial intelligence alone, one third of the top papers were, were written by Chinese. Um, authors. So it's uh, there uh, a lot of um, international students turned immigrants. They're actually the backbone of um, Silicon Valley and uh, high tech. So um, and you know what this policy um, and, um, and future policies um, of continuing to f to limit Chinese students in STEM areas to work in, in the United States are going to really exacerbate um, the technology um, issues, the talent shortage in the United States. We have a question from Helena Kalinda of the Henry Luce Foundation. Did your research look at demographics in terms of how many students come from urban areas and from rural areas? Yes, great question. Um, this is a very urban phenomenon. And that's why when I was arguing that um, the, their social economic conditions are very diverse, but the overall picture is they're the privileged population. 95% of my sample are coming from urban, uh, urban residents. So uh, studying abroad is distinctly urban phenomenon in China. And uh, what I just want to emphasize is among this privileged population, there is a lot more socioeconomic diversity among them. Some of them, a, a huge number of them are middle class professionals and some of them are working class uh, families. And I share, um, I wrote a couple stories in the book really showing that some working class, um, especially from major cities like Beijing or Shanghai, uh, their parents' salaries are just unimaginably low to be able to afford their American higher education here, the tuition dollars at the University of California or Boston University or Syracuse. And they're coming here because their parents are selling their um, downtown apartments, which is small already because they appreciate it so much. And then moving to relocating to a distant uh, um, outskirts of the urban areas uh, to realize a profit so that their their children can go to go to college here yeah and there's a wonderful the way you describe it in the book corollary to that that 
the Chinese students come from the glittering new modern Chinese cities and end up in parts of the United States that are not what they imagined. And you quote from an urban Chinese student who wound up at Beloit, from Beijing to Beloit. And she wrote, before I came, I thought the US was, I'm sorry, it's a little dark here, was all like uh, the glittering high rises and rich city. I could never have imagined American society so rural and boring, or imagine this um, rural place, but I never imagined it would be so um, in the middle of nowhere. It's even hard to find a taxi here. Yeah, yeah, I remember that that interview that uh, that students are saying that they they found one taxi and they hope they hold on to that taxi driver's number because that's the only one uh, she can find. So, um, yes, there is quite a bit of disillusionment as well. And some students think that, you know, New York City represents America and turns out it's not. Yeah. Yeah, this is a very largely urban population for sure. We have a question from another faculty member at BU, Eugenio Menegon. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. I find that university offices of admission are black boxes, especially for us faculty. We are sometimes frustrated at the way Chinese students are admitted without sufficient vetting or preparation, but feel powerless as faculty as we are at the receiving end. You mentioned solutions like recruiting tours in China. Could you give us examples of what admission operations of US institutions might have done well in recent years and how faculty can be involved in helping with good admission practices? Yes, um, actually I have done some field work in China and this is something what I found in a private school in China uh, that private school um, is not at all competitive or prestigious. Um, it's uh, set up by one former educator who is uh, fed up with the mainstream education institutions. So basically what he got is a lot of uh, students who could not really survive in the um, competitive mainstream public schools. So they sent their kids to his school. Okay, so this uh, this you know, now, now he's uh, becoming the principal of the school. And this principal was uh, formally educated in, in, in the West, in the, uh, I think he got his master's degree in higher education administration. So he has some kinds of networks here in the United States. What he did is in his high school, there is no testing and there is no, and he discouraged his students to go out to any kind of external agencies for counseling help or test prep. And he said he wrote the recommendation letter for every student. And what he did is he visited uh, many lower tier, second tier uh, liberal arts colleges, very small in America, and established some kind of a partnership between those liberal arts colleges and his tiny little school. Because if, you know, he thinks that his school is small 
and the students in his small school are going to be very suitable for the small liberal colleges in the West. So um, I did the research. I visited his school a couple of times. The most recent time is 2017, and he showed to me that he has listed, he has set up partnership with 19 liberal arts colleges in the U.S. And under the partnership, there is no requirement for ACT. There is only requirement for TOEFL, I believe. And the score is, is way much lower than the major universities or you know, other liberal arts colleges. I think a couple of students scored 80 and they got in. And uh, in addition to that, those liberal arts colleges offer the students a scholarship up to $10,000, $20,000. So it's really a win-win situation. These liberal arts colleges, they get good students recommended by this principal because the principal know the student intimately. So there is, a, there is a good vetting process. At the same time, the students, they're oftentimes uh, sort of not, not enjoy their time in Chinese, in regular Chinese schools, um, did not have to go through this, uh, you know, um, rat race of testing and having this uh, way much straightforward a supported mechanism of admissions process um, to the college. Yeah, so I actually interviewed a couple of students. One of them enrolled in St. Paul uh, at Minnesota, and, um, and, and he had a very, very uh, productive time there. And what he decided to do is, is after completing his education at St. Paul, he, uh, he's gonna work as a teacher back in, in China from, from his, uh, his original school. This is a sort of independent school in China. So it's actually very interesting Chinese education system in recent years because of the problem in the mainstream has actually booming with all those kinds of small independent schools. Um, and uh, there actually has a, has a very good market there. Yeah. We have another anonymous question. What is your advice about the impact of teaching via Zoom on academic freedom issues? There is concern about putting students in China in an awkward or problematic position given the PRC government sensitivity. That's a great question. I'm actually thinking about it. So um, again, um, this you know uh, a disclaimer that um, a, di a disclaimer that I have not really done any research with regards to that question. But given that I will be teaching this fall myself, um, I'm actually thinking that uh, this question probably needs to be treated um, by subjects to some extent. Um, certain subjects like STEM, uh, like math. Um, could be having different nature of issues with academic freedom than political science, for example. And I think as the university, we probably need to provide alternatives to faculty for the sake of um, either backup or, you know, different faculty have different preferences as well in terms of, um, so I think Zoom as the only option is problematic and um, we need to have alternatives provided to faculty. And I do believe that academic, uh, academic freedom um, 
run into different issues or having different differential extent of problems in different domains and subjects. And um, certain areas of studies, um, these issues are more acute than other areas, are more prominent. We have a question from Mary Suto. Which countries will benefit if fewer Chinese students come to the U.S.? Canada? <laughs> I think many countries will benefit. Um, but now the problem is um, there is this, uh, the geopolitical tensions are not just between the United States and China. Is um, uh, there are a couple Western countries um, with Chinese um, government, the relations go downwards. So international education experts um, have predicted a more of a intra-Asia student mobility. So in other words, uh, students could think about going to Japan, going to Singapore, um, and other places, and even Hong Kong. And this is the anti- um, this is counterintuitive, it's, it's opposite to our expectation, but um, if you're talking to college professors in Hong Kong, um, their applications, even with this, um, not, not most recently, but uh, with all the protests starting from last June, but their applications from mainland China is, is not really going down. So um, yeah, so which countries are going to benefit most? Probably countries closer to China. I think we have time for one more question. This comes from Anna Kendrick, and I apologize to all those whose questions I have not gotten to. Does your research give you a sense of why some students go abroad to the US or UK, Canada, et cetera, versus those who opt for internationally accredited joint venture universities in hmm. China? what financial versus political versus personal choices come into play and how might students backgrounds trajectories or opportunities differ or rather what differences might chinese students and parents perceive thank you so much this is a great question a very important one especially given the current uh the the pandemic and beyond. I think the joint the joint venture, uh, the internationalization at home model, probably will be increasingly popular. Uh, that's that's my sense. But by the way, for all the other questions, and I have not really uh, got time to engage. You're welcome to uh, email me and reach out to me. I'll be more than happy to address them. Um, so for this question. I have not really conducted the comparative analysis of uh, uh, students' um, different choices uh, or how they really calibrate their choices uh, compared to, you know, compare students studying in the United States and UK uh, and on the mobility model with students studying at NYU Shanghai or Kunshan Duke um, with the internationalization at home model. Um, and you reminded me that this is actually a great project <laughs> to look into. And so, so again, my sense is um, because internationalization at home is actually less expensive, for sure, and less expensive uh, financially, less costly, personally and politically, uh, they're not at all subject to travel ban, for example. 
um, and they're going to be increasingly popular. And um, from the education equity perspective, as a sociologist of education, I actually very much, um, very much advocate internationalization at home model, um, because I think that's that's going to provide a more accessible model of international education to more students, just like Zoom, to some extent, that we expand our access to audience rather than uh, I would very much uh, be interested to speak in person at the National Committee, and that's actually our original plan. But I think the audience we draw probably physically is fewer than um, now on Zoom. I think likewise, internationalization at home will provide a expanded access to um, for international education for Chinese students, rather than they have to travel thousands of miles away and subject themselves to all kinds of um, additional financial, personal, and political cost. And the anxiety to get back to the title of the book of applying for visas. Exactly. Even oh, yeah. with, I didn't mention that. Even yeah, without that. the restrictions that President Trump has recently imposed, the consulates and embassies around the world are not processing anything except emergency visas right now. Right. And when they reopen, there's going to be an enormous backlog. Right. So even students who are ready to get on an airplane and come to the U.S. or go anywhere else are going to have a hard time getting visas that will allow them to do so. That is why my answer to, I think someone raised this um, in the questions, um, is that in the fall, we're getting ready for Chinese students not returning. Um, and this is regardless of their personal intention. It is because of the visa barrier. We could go on with lots and lots more questions and discussions. I hope that people will read Mayi's book. We've put a link to it in the chat function so that you can order a copy. Um, I would encourage everybody to read it. She got to some of the topics that she covered in the book today, but there's a great deal more. It's a really rich analysis of what motivates Chinese students and their parents, why they come here, what they encounter when they get here. Um, it's very, very much worth reading. Thank you very much for giving us the time today. And thank you to everybody from around the country and beyond who joined us. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Margot, for your wonderful moderation, <laughs> moderator role. And I appreciate uh, all these questions. And if any other additional questions we have no time to attend to, please email me. And, um, and I look forward to addressing and engaging with them. Thank you. Thank you all. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.